Now, if you've been with us um, over the last several weeks, um, we've been talking about in this series, Lessons from the Chaos. There's a lot of chaos in life, and we've been telling the story of David. And this morning, it's one of my favorite stories in the life of David. It's one of the most meaningful things that has impacted my life in some really powerful ways. And um, I think it's because, you know, all of us in our lives, like, we have tests of maturity. And I think one of the greatest tests of maturity, one of the greatest indicators of our own maturity is how we handle authority and influence and power when we've been given it. And we all can get that right and wrong in our lives. And, um, you know, and you, some of you have maybe experienced environments like this where you've worked under a leader who's used power for themselves. Maybe they were insecure, maybe they had other motives, maybe they were all about promoting, maybe they were about something else, but nothing is more disturbing, right, or repulsive than when you see a leader leveraging their influence and their power and their authority to benefit themselves instead of others. And it's interesting because it is like, and we'll, we'll learn this today, of how different that is. But here's a test for it in, even in that, right? When you're in that environment, some of you have a boss or somebody that you're like, ah. Oh. When you're in that environment, maybe one of the greatest tests for ourselves is how we respond to that. And that's part of what we're talking about today. The test of your own maturity will be, how do I handle being in this environment with this person? How do I respond to them? It says a lot about our own maturity. How do I use my influence in this environment? And everyone in this room, no matter how old or young you are, no matter what place you hold at work, no matter where you, what position you are in your family, you have influence. Every single person in this room holds influence. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're trying to follow him, I guarantee your influence is increasing because that's what happens when you follow Jesus. So this morning... I want to talk about, this is equally important, this moment when it dawns on you that you're the most influential person in the room. You're the person who holds the authority in the room, whether that's the, the boardroom or the classroom or the locker room or the family room. In that moment that it dawns on you of like, I have the power here, I have the influence here, I'm the one in charge. In that moment, what do you do? Because what you do in that moment, how you handle that moment says a lot about you and it says a lot about me. And so what are we going to do in that moment when we're in that moment? And few things, few things are as inspiring in my mind than a leader who you see who leverages all of their influence and all of their power and all of their authority for others. Right? They, they say, the circle of God of influence that you've given me, I'm going to leverage all that I am and all that you've given me for them. They say no to themselves so that they can say yes to others around them. I mean, that's, that's some of our favorite stories, right? When people do that, when they've gone like, no, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do this for me. I, I, there's something here I could benefit from, but I'm going to say no to it so I can say yes to somebody else. That's really powerful. I remember when I was in second grade, um, I, 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 didn't, I wasn't really excited about going to school anyway, but that year I had a teacher who was not excited about teaching. She was older, and um, she was a little tired of kids. And I don't know why I rubbed her particularly the wrong way, although some of you who know me probably could point that out to me, right? Um, so, but I did, and she would just go after me, and it was, 
I, I don't remember all the incidents, but I do remember hating to go to school. I remember crying and saying, please don't send me there. Now, my mom's a school teacher, worked in the same school district as a teacher, and so she would hear me, and, and it didn't take long before my mom was like, like, she tried to, she doesn't like, you know, my mom's not like, I want to run into conflict. It's just not in her nature. She is, she is so soft-spoken and such a nurturing person. And so it, it, she had to wrestle with this. And finally, she was like, I can't, I can't stand it, watching it anymore. And so she scheduled a conference with this teacher and the principal. Because she had tried to talk to her in person. She was like, enough's enough. And I don't know what she said. I don't know what my dear, soft-spoken mother said in that moment, but I know this, she leveraged all of her influence and all of her power, even though, she, you know, if you're a teacher in the room, right, you don't want to be that parent, right? You don't want to be that person. You don't want to have that reputation as a teacher. She leveraged that all, said no to herself so she could say yes to me. And it made all the difference in my life, and I'll never forget that. Now, that's just one instance of it. And, and, and here's the thing, and then some of you, like, we all wish I want to be that inspiring person. But here's the truth of it. You don't know that you're gonna, which lever you're going to pull when it comes to those decisions until you're in that moment when someone's handed you the keys. Until you're in that moment when suddenly you have the authority. Until you're in that moment where you're like, it's my decision. I know we'd, we'd all like to say like, oh no, I know. But you've already had enough experience in your life, right, that you've made mistakes and you're like, no, I don't know. And this is the moment for David that we're going to enter into this morning. The moment that he gets handed the keys. The moment that we enter into his story and we discover what's going on underneath the hood for David. And then his journey through this season. And so this morning we're just going to come back to 1 Samuel 16 to a moment when David all gets started. And in 1 Samuel 16, you can follow along this morning if you open up your scripture. There's an outline in there. Some of the scriptures will be in there too this morning. But we got to... We've got a long span of scripture to cover this morning. So this is this moment. I want to kind of set the scene. David is a middle schooler, right? David's just a young boy. He's just growing up as a middle schooler. And, and he, he's, he's out, he's, you know, shepherding the sheep on a regular basis. And the prophet Samuel, now you remember prophets in that day were like, that was like how God revealed truth to the nation. So the prophet Samuel was kind of a spokesman for God. God said to him, I want you to pick the new king. I'm sending you on a secret mission to pick the next king. Now, the reason it was secret was because Israel already had a king, right? Yeah, Israel already had a king, which makes this particularly awkward, right? I'm picking the new king, and the king doesn't know I'm picking the new king, so it's a bit of a secret, kind of mysterious mission. And so Samuel shows up to David's dad's house, to Jesse's house. And when he shows up to Jesse's house, he says, listen, I'm here, and he doesn't really tell him why exactly he's here. He just says, I'm here to make a special sacrifice. I'm here to do something a little different, right? He doesn't really tell Jesus, and, and he comes to this town where they live, which is Bethlehem, which ironically, like, you know, a thousand years later, there's another king born. Y'all know who that king is? It's a Sunday school answer. Come on. Yeah, yeah, you guys did really well this morning. Good job. So, yeah, Jesus is born in Bethlehem a thousand years later. So you see the irony of this, that where the moment that a new king is chosen, the same location, the same geography, as eventually the, the king will come. 
But Jesse, Samuel comes to Jesse and he says, listen, I, I, I'm going to make this special sacrifice. And here's what I'd like to do. I'd like you to invite your whole family over for dinner. We're going to, I'm just, I'm going to make a special sacrifice. I'm going to do this special thing. And here's what Samuel's idea is. When all these people show up in Sam and Jesse's family, I'm just going to know, right? I'm just going to see the one and I'm just going to like kind of get the nod from God's spirit. Like, that's the one. Like, I'll just know when I look at that person that they're the one, right? I'm just going to know it's that guy. So, we, so they invite the whole family over. They're kind of having dinner. And this is what it says in 1 Samuel 16. It says, when they arrived, Samuel looked at Eliab and he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Now, Eliab is the firstborn, right? He's the eldest. And he firstborns, eldest in the family. Come on, put your hands up. I want to compete proudly, right? Yeah, I'm a firstborn, right? Like, you guys often, you're like, you're the responsible ones. Like, we all know, the rest of us in the family all know that your mom and dad's favorite, even though they're not allowed to say it, right? We all know, like, we're kind of living under your shadow. And, like, so, so like, this is what Samuel thinks. Oh, this is easy. He's the oldest. He's the firstborn. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's the eldest one in the family. This is easy, right? So he's like, okay, God, this is the one, right? Lord says to him, Lord says to Samuel, this is what he says. He says, listen, Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. Listen, this is great. The Lord does not look at things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. So powerful, right? I mean, this is, but this is really difficult for every single person in this room. Like, this is difficult. Like, we, we even in our culture today, like, we have a hard time with this. In fact, I just saw this advertisement for a dentistry office the other day, came up on my Facebook feed, and I thought, how crazy is that true? Is this like, why is dentistry important? Because even though he's missing an eyebrow, the first thing you noticed was a smile. <laughs> like, I, I was like, wow, he is missing an eyebrow, right? But, but Listen, this is, here, this is the reality. You do it, and I do it. We see the outside, and we make assumptions, right? Like, this is the mistake that Israel made when they went into King Saul. They chose King Saul because he was head and shoulders above the rest. He was handsome, and everybody said, that's got to be the guy. And in ancient times, just like times today, people often ascribe value and authority and influence to those that look a certain way. But the Lord says, that's not where it comes from, right? It's not what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside that really matters. People look at the appearance, but God doesn't. We all, I mean, we all do this, right? Well, I mean, most people do. Not you all, but other people, right, do this. But, but we, like, we all have this problem, and, and it's so important to get this. This is such a good, like, just side truth in this story of, like, it's what's on the inside that matters, right? Like, ladies, don't be fooled, right? They may have big like this, right? But it's what's on the inside. Don't be fooled by what's on the outside. Look on the inside. Guys, never mind. You're hopeless. Right? <laughs> now, listen, listen. So, Samuel goes through all six of Jesse's sons. They're all lined up there, right? Eliab's not the one. He goes through all six. God's like, mm, 
And Samuel's kind of confused because God said, I want you to go there. And one of these things is kind of awkward for Samuel, so he asked this awkward question, right? The question no parent really wants to be asked, but here it is. Yes, Jesse, are these all of your sons? I mean, is there someone missing? And so Jesse looks around, and he's like, oh, yeah, the middle schooler. He's not here. I mean, sometimes he's kind of pesty to us, right? He's the baby brother. So we just send him out to shepherd a lot. So, yeah, so he says, listen, send for him. Bring him here. And David walks in the room, and as soon as Samuel sees him, God's spirit moves him. He says, that's the one. That is the one. So he sends for him. He comes up. He says, listen, he's healthy. But God says to him, rise and anoint him. This is the one. This is the one that I'm doing this work on the inside. This is the one. Now, this has this got to be a strange moment for the family, right? Because remember, Samuel hasn't told them really, as far as we know, that he's there to anoint the king. So he just kind of walks over to David, pours this oil on his head, prays over him, says a blessing over him packs up his stuff, and leaves. The family's like, well, that was odd. But David, and we, we don't know what his family knew, but, but we know this about David, that set in course, in motion for David to know, God has something special for me ahead. I know that God has appointed me for something special, right? Like, this is like for you, like this is good, like God's saying this to everyone, like, God, I've appointed something special for you. And about two years later, we have this moment that we talked about earlier in the series where David shows up to a battle scene and slays a giant. And in that moment against Goliath, he is like so famous and everybody knows his name and the king loves him and he just, he just keeps gaining no riding. Now he's in his 20s and things are just up and to the right. I mean, things are just, they couldn't go better. Everybody loves him. The king loves him until the king doesn't. We talked about this the last couple weeks. The king gets jealous. He gets kind of psycho. He goes kind of nuts. And he's like, I'm not going to have you take my power. I'm not going to have you take my authority. And he begins to hunt David down. And for the next eight years, right, David is a fugitive. David is running from Saul and all the time knowing, right, this is the, this is the tension all the time knowing that God has chosen him. At this point, David knows God has chosen him to be king. God has appointed all the while. He knows that what's his. He knows what God's promised. And all the while, he is on the run. Can you imagine this? Like those promises that God offers you. Those things that God has said to you in the dark, and you, in the light rather, and then you get in the dark of your life. And you're like, what is going on, God? How come you're not showing up here? What is going wrong? And you're like so tempted, right, to make it happen instead of wait for it to happen. And David, in the, remember, in the desert, he learns these important lessons. He makes monumental mistakes in the desert. People are killed on his behalf because he tries to take it into his own hands. And he learns these lessons, begins to seek God in prayer and says, this is not about me, it's not about me, it's not about me. And maybe this is one of the lessons in the chaos that we need to learn as we step into places of influence in our life, places where God promises for us, is that it's not about what I want. It's about what God wants. It's what God wants. 
that one of the most important lessons that we can learn is that we shouldn't run ahead of God, that we shouldn't get out there and do our own thing, that we shouldn't just take and claim something for ourselves, but really seek God and say, God, what are you doing here? I want to walk through you. Go before me. And what's really interesting, and this is the part of the story I want to ex- just explore with all of you right now, is that there are two opportunities in David's life in this season when essentially he can kill Saul. I mean, it is like he's just delivered right into his hands. We're going to look at, and David, in this monumental thing of the same opportunities that we have to, when we're like, man, I could just claim it here. I could just get it here. It's right here in front of me. And David says, no. And he chooses not to. And it is like, what's going on? So I want to talk about this too. Here, the, one of the more famous ones is this moment when David is hiding in a cave with his men. They're on the run from King Saul, and so they're always kind of hiding. So they end up hiding in this cave because King Saul's coming that way. And their thought process is, as soon as they pass by, King Saul and his men pass by, they're going to exit the cave and head the other direction. Except you know how God has a sense of irony, right? And so King Saul's passing by the cave, and suddenly he gets the urge. You know the urge when you're like, I got to go. Right? I got to go now. And so, so it's matter like number one or two, right? He's like, I got to do a number two, right? And you, you, they're guys, right? So they're like, well, we don't want none of that business here, right? You better go in that cave, right? We don't want to do, we don't want to be in the middle of that. So he goes in the cave. And David and all of his men are hiding in their cave and their eyes are adjusted. They can see just fine. But King Saul comes in. He can't see a thing. Sits down, just about to do his business. You know, this is probably the only time in the Bible that talks about bathroom stuff, right? So, I mean, if you're teaching, like, elementary school, and that, like, this is a great passage, because everybody, all kids love to talk about this, but he sits down, he's, like, in the most vulnerable position possible, and he's about to go to the bathroom, right? And, 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 and in this moment, like, right, David's men are all like this, are you kidding me, David? Like, this is, you see what, like, this is your moment, Right? You're supposed to be king. This is your moment. We can end this whole thing where we're running right now, right here. Right? They, they say to him, 1 Samuel 24. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke about when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands and deal with him as you wish. You ever have that moment where you're like, God made this promise. Doesn't feel like the right way to take it. Right? Something's, and this is David, he's like, he's so tempted in this moment to pursue it, to go after it. And David almost does it. In fact, he crawls up in the dark to Saul, takes his knife out, you know, like his, he just cuts off the edge of his robe. And he's thinking about it. And then he thinks, no, I've, I've been down this road before. I have done it my way before. And it has been a disaster. He says, no, I can't do it. He's convicted, and he backs off, right? In this moment, he says, I'm not going to take it into my own hands. And it says, verse 5, it says, Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he says to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to a master. Listen to this. To the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is anointed by the Lord. In other words, David's saying, I am not going to take this into my own hands. I'm not going to do it my own way. This is really powerful. But David... He's not an older sibling. He's the youngest sibling, right? He's the baby brother. You got any babies in the family in here? Come on. 
Come on, proudly, all right? Okay, you all know, I'm, I'm a baby too, so let me tell you what, let me tell you about baby brothers, baby sisters, right? We grew up, we got just used to like trash talking our older siblings and running from them. Like we had to, we'd defend ourselves, right? So there's always a little bit of instigator. And that's a fact, my wife is so embarrassed sometimes. We go to Giant, you know that, that stupid robot, Marty and Giant? You know who I'm talking about? Okay. Every time I go, I just decide like I can either be angry that he stalks me and gets in my way like other people, or I can just have a little fun. Right? So, so here's what I do with Marty. I wait till Marty, like I see Marty, and he's like in this vulnerable position of like in a corner someplace. I just back him into it with my cart. And you know, he won't come at you, right? So he just keeps backing up. And he keeps backing until he gets up against something, and he can't find his way out. And then I just leave my cart there and walk away. And my wife is like, you are so embarrassing. I can't believe you do that to Marty. I'm like, listen, Marty's a robot. He doesn't have feelings. It's all good, right? And, and everybody else in the store is like, that is so great. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm a baby brother. <laughs> like, it's just, so this is David, right? This is, this is who David is, right? David, David realizes I've done this, and he, Saul gets back on his donkey, and they kind of start away from the cave, and David realizes, I can't miss this opportunity, right? He comes out of the cave, he kind of whistles, he gets all their attention, and he says, Ahem! I don't know if you know this, but I was in the cave the whole time. I could have done whatever I wanted to you. I could have taken your life, but I chose not to. I chose not to. And he says in verse 12, May the Lord judge between you and me, for the Lord avenge the wrongs that you've done to me. My hand will not touch you, as the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. There it is, kind of rubbing it in a little bit. But my hand will not touch you. He says, I'm not going to be that person. I'm going to choose not to do this my own way. Now, there's a second story that's also important. The second story, it's not quite as popular, but it, has, it happens in the desert of Ziph. And, and so, so out in the desert, you know, there's not many trees. And so David has to send out spies all the time from his men to figure out where Saul is because it's kind of hard to hide. And so they got to know where they are at the distance so that they cannot be close enough that Saul's going to take revenge because David's like, I'm just going to try to stay out of your way until God does what God does. And so the spies come back to him and says, hey, we just want to let you know, King Saul's camped out. They're camped out for the night. And David is a baby brother. And he says, let's go see. Like, let's just go see. Right? So he goes over there. They get to kind of the hilltop. They're kind of looking down over it. Night is falling. And King Saul's doing what kings do, camping out in the middle of 3,000 men. Right? He's falling asleep right there in the middle. Puts a, puts a spear and his water jug, and the things that he needs right there beside him, because that's what kings do. And David is looking down over all of this stuff. The sun goes down. David says, looks at, look at his friend Abishai, and he says, I got this really bad idea. You want to be part of my really bad idea? Let's sneak down into the camp. Let's sneak down into the middle of the camp just because we can Right, just for a little, let's just have a little, so they get down there, so they go down to the army at night, it says in 1 Samuel 26, David and Abishai went to the army at night, and there was Saul lying in, lying in the camp, spear stuck in the ground by his head, Abner, that's his, Abner is Saul's bodyguard, and all of the bodyguards, all the soldiers around him are lying around him, and Abishai says to David, they're standing there in the middle, nobody's awake, it's quiet at night, and Abishai whispers to David, this is your moment. His spear's right there, David. 
Listen, I know you've got all these convictions, so you don't have to do it. I'll do it. Come on, David. Power up. It's time. Take what's yours. This is your moment. I'll do it for you. I'll be the bad guy. I won't even strike him twice. One nice thrust. It's all over. And David says, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Who can do whatever they want, whenever they want, because they can and be guiltless? The Lord himself, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come, or he will die, or he'll go into battle and perish. Listen, the Lord forbid that I lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. The Lord forbid that I go get what I deserve in my own way. You hear it? I refuse to violate the will of God to get the promise of God. I refuse to violate the will of God to get the blessings of God. I refuse to throw away God's principles to gain God's promises. It's, it's not about what I want. It's not about me. So they walk away, but before they walk away, remember who David is, the youngest brother? He says, let's have some fun. He said, get the, get the spear, get the water jug. Let's take it. You know, it's like we're stealing the mascot, right? We're going to take it up on the hill. They get outside the camp. They get up on the hill, and they yell, and they wake up the camp, and they say, hey, Abner, bodyguard, you missing anything? Right? And he looks around, the spear, and the water jug's gone. They're holding it up, and they're just like, Abner, you know, the bodyguard's like, uh-oh. I'm getting a demotion, right? Like, they're going to dock my pay for this one. Like, I'm in trouble. And David says, listen, I'm not, I could have killed the king, but I chose not to. I chose not to. Because this is what David's saying. It's got to be God's will. It's got to be God's way. And it's got to be God's time so important for us to get in our own lives. It's got to be God's will. It's got to be God's way. It's got to be good time. In those times in our life where we want to rush it, in those times in our life where we're like, I can't wait any longer. I've been on the run, God. I've waited long enough. I want to be delivered. I want to be healed. I want to get better. I want to get whatever. And we want to rush it. And David says, nope. It's got to be God's will. It's got to be God's way. And it's got to be God's time. So seven more years, David and Saul are doing this thing. And the whole time, everybody knows that David deserves it. Everybody knows that David's earned it. And they're all saying, David, claim it. Take it. It's yours. You're the one that's earned it. That, that guy doesn't deserve it. He's not the right one. He hasn't done the right things. Just take it from him. And David says, God's will, God's timing, God's way. And eventually, Saul dies in war. And, 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 you know, this is like, oh, it's my time. Except that Saul's son, Ishbosheth, rises to power and takes control of part of Israel. Right? Now, David has the strength. He has the forces. Ishbosheth doesn't have that much influence. He could take it at this point. He could go to war. But he doesn't. Seven more years. 
finally, Ishbosheth is murdered. And, and the guys who murder him, who think we're doing David a favor, bring his head to David. Right? They behead him. They bring this head. They're like, oh, we removed the last obstacle from David. They bring this head. And, and, and this, is, this is what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 4. It says, they bring the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day, the Lord. In other words, they're saying, listen, we did it. This day, the Lord, through us, our own way, has avenged my Lord the king against Saul and his offspring. Now, I just want to pause for a second and give you a little bit of, so you're not distracted by the whole beheading thing. This might be a really good piece of information. Maybe you can use this somewhere in your life. But here, here's the thing about beheadings. We look at them in the Old Testament, we're like, doggone it. Like, that's pretty gross, right? Like, that's gory. Why in the world are you beheading people all the time? Why are you going to cut their heads off? What's up with that, right? Like, like why are you doing that? There's a reason, and I want to, I want to tell you what the reason is right now. Are you ready? They didn't have iPhones, like, they couldn't take pictures. There's no camera, right? Like, like, there's no way to prove this. I mean, your only other option is you grab the whole body and you drag it for miles and miles and miles to show up with the body. Who wants to do that, right? So instead, they take the head, right, because when, that's the way you prove someone's dead. You're like, hey, here it is. This is proof. It's just that simple. And so, so David goes on. This is, this is his interaction then with these guys. He goes on, and this is what he says to him. He says, listen, you thought you were doing me a favor. He says, in fact, he says, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of trouble. He's like, like you, you, had tr- you thought this was trouble for you. He says, listen, you thought you were bringing me good news? He said, I got news for you. The Lord didn't need your help. The Lord didn't ask for your help to do it this way. You killed an innocent man. You killed an innocent man in his own house in on his own bed. He said, I can't ignore that. He said, should I not now demand from you the same thing? And he orders his men to kill the two murderers. They thought, we did David a favor, right? But that is not how David thought. Get this. In your own life, how many times is it so tempting to just go after it your way because you're tired of waiting for it? And David on the inside says, no, not my way, God's. It's God's will. It's God's time. It's God's way. David could have taken the kingdom by force, but he chose not to. So after Ishbosheth's death, all the tribes of Israel... All the people who have been cheering David on all this time, they all say, listen, David, you're the dude, you're the man, you're the king. They are enthusiastically coming to him and say, you go be the king. We've been waiting for this moment. You be the king. 2 Samuel chapter 5, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. They said, we are your own flesh and blood. And in the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one. Like, we recognize Saul was doing all this stuff, but you were the one, right? You were the one who led the military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people of Israel. You will become their ruler. Like, do you understand the importance of this moment? This is like a pivotal moment. This is the moment, right? David's about to pull the lever, and he gets to choose. Because everybody's like, 
you're vindicated. You're our guy, right? They do like all of us do. We always look to people as leaders and we say, we want, I mean, we say that we worship God, but then we, you know, man, that leader's really good. Boy, I really like him. And we start following that leader. We get our eyes off of God and David never made this mistake, right? Who's the true king? And in this moment, he gets to choose. In this moment of greatness, in this moment, like, everybody knew that he's destined for this. Everybody wanted him to have this. And when he was 20s, he probably didn't have the maturity for this. When he's in the desert making his monumental mistakes, he's not ready for this. But in this moment, after all these mistakes, an extraordinary amount of maturity is shown. And his greatness as a leader, because they're about to hand him the power, he's the most powerful person in the room. And in this moment, this is what David says, verse 3. He says, when all the Israel elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them. They're about to hand him the power. They're about to put the crown on his head. They're about to give him the keys. And the scripture says that David chose to make a covenant with them. In this audience are men who chased him, who men who tried to kill him, who men were formerly his enemies. He could have been bitter. He could have done whatever he wanted. He was in his rights as a king to do so. And this is what he says. I'm going to make a covenant. You know what a covenant is? A covenant is a promise before God. That's what he does. He says, I'm going to make a promise to you before God. Why would he do that? Like, why in this moment? He didn't have to. Why would he do that? And this is the, this is the moment, right? The king made a covenant. goes on to say, at Hebron, and here's the three words that tell us everything we need to know about this whole passage, before the Lord. He knew that he was coming before God and saying, God, you are the one who gives me influence. If I have authority, it has come from you. I am not in charge. I don't deserve to be in charge. I will make a mistake if it's all about me. It's not about me. God, it is about you. I am a king, but I am not the king. When David was 30 years old, he became king, and he ruled for 40 years. And we'll talk more about his rule next week, some of the other mistakes that he made. But here's where I want to end this week. Here's the lessons of, that I want you to get this week. If you're a leader, if you're an aspiring leader, if you're someone who has influence in any way in your home, wherever it is, listen. Leadership is stewardship. You understand? Leadership is something that God gives you, and you are for a season to steward it well. You're stewarding the authority of God well. Leaders are accountable. David says, I'm not above the law. I, I'm accountable. And that means you have to choose as you're moving into places of authority to make yourself accountable. You know, when your kids call you out on something, you're like, like you can choose, right? Well, I get to do that, but you don't. It's not accountability. It's when you say, you're right. Because I'm accountable to God. Leaders use power to protect and influence to lead. This is David's lesson, right? He uses his power to protect, not to protect himself, to protect others. And he uses his influence to lead. David learned something that all of us need to learn. That's when you're handed the keys, when you need to power up, you choose not to. We, we see them say no, and we say, 
we see him say no to himself and yes to God. We say, wow, that is inspiring. But I just want to leave you with this thought that there's this moment in our lives where we go from inspiring and inspired to required. Because if you're a follower of Jesus today, and I want you to just think about this for a second, it was Jesus who came to earth and said, I will leverage all of my authority and all of my power and all of my influence for whose benefit? For you and for me. It was Jesus, right, who when he walked into the room, he was always the most powerful person in the room. And he leveraged his authority and his righteousness and his power, not for himself, but for us. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in John 13, 14, this beautiful moment where he serves his disciples and blows their minds, this is what he says. And you should do likewise. Because this is what leaders do. This is what followers of me do. The greatest moment of maturity in your life, the greatest indicator of maturity is how you handle your influence and your authority and your power. The moment that it dawns on you that you're that person, whether it's in the locker room or the family room or the boardroom, whatever room it's in, when you realize that you're that person and you have to ask yourself, in this moment, am I leveraging what I have for myself to do something that I want to be about me, to get my agenda done, or am I leveraging it to benefit others? It's my life up on the altar in this moment because few things are as repulsive as a leader uses their influence for their own benefit. And few things are as inspiring as a leader who says, I'm going to do it for you. So listen, if you're a dad or a mom, you've been handed authority. If you're a big brother, a big sister, you've got power. If you're a teacher or a coach or a captain or a boss or an administrative assistant or a scheduler or a board member or a president, imagine how much change you could bring to others if you just did like Jesus and said, I'm here to serve, not to be served. I'm going to use all that I have to benefit others. Next time... You're the most powerful person in the room, the smartest person in the meeting, the most influential person in the relationship. Ask yourself, how am I leveraging this for others? Because Jesus said, this is what's required of those who follow me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in your selflessness, you showed us the way. You changed the world once, and I believe that you want to change it again through each and every one of us. You were always the most powerful person in the room, and yet you were the one who chose to wash the feet. You were the one who chose to take the knee. You were the one who chose to take the time. You came to serve, not to be served. So in this moment, I want to pray this prayer this morning. And maybe some of you are in the room that you want to pray this kind of prayer with me this morning. Right in your heart, Jesus, transform my heart so that I will always be looking to serve others. Lord Jesus, help me to leverage my power, my authority, and my influence to benefit someone else in my life. Jesus, I thank you for doing that for me, and I just want to follow you. Lord, you handed us so much gifts. 
in showing us what it means to serve. Help us to lead in the world differently. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, listen, this morning as we enter into a time of worship again, I want to encourage you, if you have a response today, to pull out your response card, your reflection today. Whether you turn it in or not, like, listen, writing it down, like the most important thing that can happen here is that you respond to God, not that you just heard some cool things and you walk out, but you say, Jesus, how am I going to encounter you today and respond to you in obedience and follow you? Now, if you've got a prayer request or some way we can pray for you, we want to do that. So this morning, during this worship moment, will you take a moment to get out that response card and to respond to God this morning?